We welcome back for part two of Jumping the S-Curve, how to beat the growth cycle, get on top and stay there with our guest and the series on all of his books. Paul Nunes, welcome back. Thanks, Aidan. Great to be back. Let's jump straight into it because you start by offering examples such as Starbucks, where the S-Curve flattened out and even the best businesses encounter these stall points. You say here that most executives, however, have trouble recognizing that time starts running out well before results begin to taper off. We see this all the time. Maybe we'll open up and describe that a little bit before we jump into the content of part two of this brilliant book. What happens is, as you get ready to and need to jump the S-curve, we think there are actually four curves that are important. And the first one is the revenue profit curve, which is the one that most people think about as the S-curve. But then we think there are three hidden S-curves that actually mature faster than the revenue curve. And I'll explain that in a little bit of detail. The first one is the strategy, which matures more quickly. The capabilities mature more quickly, and the talent matures more quickly. Um, So the first one, strategy. If you think about um, the nature of competition, competition evolves, emerges, and commoditizes. And so there's really four stages that we saw Um, in the nature of uh, strategy maturity. And so basically you start by competing on um, features. You start on the product, on the the nature of the the offering. Then it goes to reliability. Then it goes to um, convenience. And then it goes to price or cost. And so the real question is, where are you in in your products? Where are you on that competitive curve? And how is that moving uh, and maturing? And so you think about, you know, the problem for uh, Blockbuster was that its revenue curve was still growing wonderfully, even as its basis curves, these hidden curves, um, were maturing and had matured more quickly. Second one is capabilities, your competences, what you're uniquely good at. That tends to mature more quickly. And then the last thing that we recognized, which was really interesting, was the nature of talent maturity in a curve. And what happens is you you tend to move from a level of having a, a blend, first mostly innovators, but then a blend of innovators and cost managers, cost cutters, the Six Sigma folks. But what happens is, as the business matures, and we talk about Starbucks and how Starbucks grew quickly to 11,000 locations by simply replicating locations, that you tend to push out that innovative talent and do a lot more with the business runners. And in fact, you really try and shrink a lot of your talents to manage the talent cost. So what we saw is that the real high performers were managing to these hidden curves not to the business performance curve that can often look a lot better than it really is. I love the way you described that because many of our audience, Paul, have been through that exact cycle where they're the ones who can sense the changes or see the curves, as you put it. And oftentimes they fail, and I've failed in the past, to be able to articulate that change. That's what I love about this show and articulating this through books like your own. You give us language to be able to articulate that and be able to drive change within the rest of the organization because many of us have been through that where oftentimes we build 
a new product or a new service within an organization. And it's almost like, oh, we'll have that now. Enough of you with the children playing around with this. Give it to us mature folks and we'll scale it. And, and I know that's what needs to be done, but that often kills people like us, the change maker, and as you say, drives us out of the organization. How do you balance that? That's one of the things. Before we get into what you talk about, the talent curve, let's, let's give a little bit of an overview from your own experience beyond even the book. Some of the stuff that we saw in terms of keeping talent in the organization, um, you know, the third part of the first half of the book in the diptych is really this idea of serious talent. So what you have to do is you have to attract really good talent, and then you have to retain them across the curve so they're there when you need them for the next leap. And so how do you do that? And so it really has been my experience that you really need to create an environment where um, somebody who's making the biggest bet of their life, really when you think about it, and this was interesting as we looked at it, there was a realization in good companies that their employees are making the bet of their lives. Um, they're literally, you know, offering their lives to you to invest in the success of the company. So they're going to be pretty serious about whether or not you're serious about winning in the marketplace and doing well as a company, right? So if you understand that and respect that, then you create an environment where serious talent wants to succeed and thrive. So you create a, an environment that has um, very little tolerance for shirking and um, lack of competence or nepotism or promotion that's promotions that aren't truly earned. I used to compare it to going to the top of a mountain. If you go to the top of a mountain, if you're going hiking for a day hike, you don't really care necessarily who you go with. But if you're planning on climbing Everest, the team really matters, and everybody on that team better be pretty serious about what they're doing and better know that everybody else is pretty serious. Um, so that's always been my experience, and it's one of the things in my own career. I've always been very pleased not to promote Accenture too much, but, you know, I was just recently seeing and looking at the, you know, the great places to work listings, and, you know, uh, Accenture has always been one of them, and kudos to us and them for doing that and some of these others. But really, when you look and you look, like, what are they doing to be a great place to work, and why is that so important? It's because they're finding ways to maintain this serious talent. We'll come back to that, Paul, and I'm going to show also today some diagrams that you have throughout the book because they really bring what you're saying to life and you've kindly let me share those. I'm going to come back to those, but I'm going to try and build our way towards them with some key excerpts from the book. You say, the best way to gauge the time left on the clock is by looking at each of three building blocks, and these are the three building blocks of the last three chapters of the book. Each one erodes in its own way and signals danger to the still successful business, like you said, for the example of Blockbuster. One is an early harbinger of trouble, can be seen in a shrinking beamy that we talked about in part one. The second is another good indicator is the presence of new market entrants because it's showing a saturation of the market. And the third then is waning distinctiveness when your pricing power trends downward over time. Maybe we'll give a very high overview of those and we might delve in a bit deeper later. And the first one is the maturing of the beamy. <clears throat> and that's the recognition that while there is 
a need and an insight, that insight doesn't necessarily last forever. So the insight that folks are going to become diabetic, which I had mentioned on the last um, show, that gets to a point, but at a certain point in the population, the, you, you get peak saturation of that effect. Aging populations, um, other sort of these mega trends, even sort of digital music, you know, if the end of digital music is any song, anytime, anywhere, and that's a big insight, then eventually you get very close to that. So now that you have sort of Spotify and these other ones, then you realize you have to compete on sort of different aspects. So the beanie wears out, and the measure, a good measure of that is the four things I just you know mentioned um, that are sort of the components of competitive aging, which is features reliability, um, convenience, and cost. The I think if you look at the cell phone industry, you see something really interesting, which is um, that it goes, it went from having a really cool phone um, and then, you know, even having like the smart tech, if people remember, <laughs> I know we date ourselves with this, but, you know, Motorola came out with the StarTech, which was the, the clamshell, the folding phone. These were all feature sort of based things, but then it started to shift to the networks and the reliability of the networks. So in the U.S., we had a famous commercial that was, you know, still being used. Now we say, you know, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? And it was about a guy walking around testing um, the cell phone reception because it was really about reliability. Any cool phone feature is nice, but if the phone doesn't work, it, it's not great. But that's a subtle but important shift because what it means is you're starting to compete on the cell networks, not the actual product of the phone. Then it becomes convenience, which is how many storefronts do I have to sell cell phones and am I selling them in drugstores with chips and all that sort of thing. So, you know, the convenience of the product. Uh, and that's another age. And then, of course, it just goes to pure cost. Um but that's one of the key factors of how you can sense and watch your timing in that. So the second part is the, the question of new market entrance. And again, that's where you start to see an interesting aspect. And you have to remember those sort of four years of competition, because the question is, are the new entrants coming in competing directly on the same thing that you're competing on? Is it new features like Motorola's clamshell phone or are people starting to compete in a different way with a different competence? Um, and that's really where you're at risk, because if your competence is all about a product feature, or if your competence is in creating reliability of the offering, then as it starts to shift. So we want to look carefully at the nature of the new entrants and competition and who's stealing our, our, our customers away and why. And the third one is one that I find really interesting as a key to watch, which is pricing power. Because as we'll talk about probably in some future shows or as we look at things, but the, the nature of pricing power um, has changed dramatically over time because of technology and has really shrunk substantially, I would argue. But even in many businesses and a lot of the consulting work that we did, it was interesting to find just how much a, a company really knew about its pricing power. So I'll give you an example, which was one of the most fun maybe of my career. I was in consulting with a, um, a, a cruise 
line company. It was, um, and they have ships, not boats, never call them boats, but cruise ships. And so we were in this meeting, top executives, and I wanted to be a little provocative. So I asked the question of, you know, how distinctive is your product? You know, how commoditized do you think the, the cruise industry is? And it all is, you know, we're very, very distinctive. We have unbelievable, you know, new things coming out and features on our ships. And I said, well, if you if you were to raise your product price right now by 20%, what percentage of customers would you lose? And so they all looked around at each other. And they were saying, I, you know, if our price were immediately 20% more, we'd probably lose 50% of our buyers. I was like, uh-huh. What if it were 10% more? <laughs> what were I five? You can probably see where this story is going. What was fascinating was that they came to realize that for a very small increase in price, they would lose an awful lot of their customers, either to direct competitors in cruises, but also to the realization that a big screen TV at the time was a competitor, a vacation, a land vacation in Europe was a competitor, still is true in that industry. So this nature of pricing power and keeping a, a, a strong eye on it and realizing, well, regardless of how competitive you are in your features or your reliability or any of that, if you can't change your price without losing your, a lot of your customers, you've lost pricing power, you've lost commoditization, and you're, you're close to the end of a curve. Thanks for bringing us through that, because I, I really want our audience to get this. And Paul, I'd love one of my dreams of this series with you is that somebody in the audience can send it their, to their strategy team or their boss or whoever is in charge of strategy and go, just listen to that. <laughs> and that's because and, they have so little time, so many, and I have so much empathy for execs. They're so time starved. But one of the reasons I mentioned that is there's a little bit of arrogance that comes with it's hubris that comes with size. So, and, and the reason I mentioned this is I want to remind our audience in part one, I mentioned the depth of the study that Paul did with his team to bring this book to life. This book is not just theory. It's not just observations. It's based on really hard data in the style of Jim Collins, good to great, for example. And one of the things Paul's team found was there was no co correlation between size which he measured as the company's percentage of the industry's leader, le leader's revenue and business performance. And the lesson here, Paul, maybe you'll unpack for us, is that companies should not focus on becoming the biggest in their industry, which they do, but be becoming the best. And maybe you'll define what you mean by best. We actually measured it on a couple of measures and found that it was, um, I'd say entirely irrelevant, but not correlated. Because... It was not only, you know, scale in terms of industry, share of industry, share of wallet, share of that, but, you know, sheer size um, and scale percentages as well in terms of, you know, revenue, but employee numbers and uh, market share. But the reason size, scale matters, but not to the level we thought. And uh, it gets interesting as we look at some of the recent changes in the speed of market saturation. So um, this comes up in the next books, which is how fast um, do you have to scale in order to provide 
both to lock in the market and to provide and saturate um, demand before you create an opening. It's something that later we call uh, catastrophic success. Um, so the idea of how you scale um, and are you prepared to service the demand at the time the demand comes becomes really critical. Um, but we found that too many companies really try to uh, achieve scale for the, the, the sense of scale. And, uh, and, you know, one of them is sort of an interesting example is GoPro. Um, when you think about um, these startups that have a really successful product, and then they feel that they have to create this large business around that new product and go on to the next products. And what they often do is they start to invest in lots of talent. They start to invest in lots of uh, operating costs, lots of, um, you know, headquarters. You have to have the big headquarters. You have to have all of this stuff so that you look like a big company. But in fact, they may not be getting the actual benefits of scale. All they're getting is really the things that hold you back when you're scale, which is bureaucracy and um, assets that don't, increase in value, but actually decrease in value. Um, so part of what we're seeing is, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about it later, but we saw it in this book too, is that you have to have asset flexibility and you have to have the ability to scale rapidly and descale rapidly, um, as well as uh, having adequate scale, really, to, to serve the number of customers you want, to, to have the impact that you want to have in the marketplace. You've teed us up beautifully for an example here because this idea of, you say, to, to be the best, you need to sometimes think small and this idea of divesting intelligently. And you say these best businesses, they shed businesses that would distract them from strategic goals, freeing up those resources you mentioned for their big bets and their beamies. And the example you give is P&G, which has refused at the time, don't forget, because Paul wrote this book over 10 years ago, to be held hostage to the past successes of famous brands, especially when it discerns a change in customer behavior. The consumer products giant sold Comet, Crisco, GIF, and other lines when they didn't square with the company's goals. Maybe you'll share this. And, and another, another way they did that was they got rid of those brands and then they bet on Olay skin creams and actually closed down Olay Cosmetics. So this is... This is where you're constantly monitoring your S-curves, your portfolio of S-curves. Where's What's where? What do I need to let go of? Because oftentimes there's this sunk cost fallacy of holding on to these brands. The whole thing of organic, inorganic growth as a part of strategy, you know, what, do you, what mergers do you have? And the, the whole question of divestiture is really interesting from the standpoint of the end of life and the end game. There's a number of great books out there about Endgame. Um, I kind of regret that we didn't actually write a book or do much um, in talking about it, though we do a bit in the next books. But this idea of do you have the flexibility to, to move between component businesses? Now, there are portfolio businesses where, you know, you're bringing in lots of different things to create some balance. So like Nokia was kind of a portfolio of rubber boots and timber, not that much related together. Retailers, we saw a lot of retailers. Um, it's easy because you're really talking about product classes. So the P&G example, it's really like, all right, we have peanut butter, we have this, we have that. But then it's the function of, you know, the evergreen question and strategy about what are the synergies 
and that. But what we found is that the high performers really focused on this capability of having strategic flexibility in their businesses and their ability to divest easily so that they could reallocate assets. Because part of what's really important in the ability to divest well and easily is the ability to generate funds that can then be uh, funneled into the next businesses and new businesses. Now, overall in strategy, you have to be very careful about that. And we'll talk about that a bit um, in the third book, Pivot to the Future, where we have you have to think about um, are you really doing the right thing by getting rid of some assets? But regardless of whether or not it's the right strategic move, having the flexibility, and that flexibility often comes with having flexible technical boundaries and the technology. Because what happens oftentimes is companies build their systems and they start to build, you know, they bring in new pieces of business and it becomes this hodgepodge patchwork of systems. And they really kind of lose the ability to move in and out of of businesses because the system simply won't allow it. Cloud computing today is, and, and, enterprise systems and and more commoditized enterprise systems has helped solve that problem a bit. But many of the companies even today we still see have a real problem with creating strategic flexibility in their portfolios because they don't have the technological flexibility um, they need to do that. So divestiture becomes really uh, the ability to divest and to acquire becomes really important. And Cisco is kind of an old story, but was one we saw in the book that um, really built up both a strategic and organizational and leadership capability of moving quickly in and out of of businesses and and acquiring businesses with new technologies and then um, moving out of ones that didn't fit the strategy, which is really a skill they um, exemplify if you look even today. Paul, you've covered so much here because you, you say that there's a plethora of crucial mistakes that can easily cost companies their chance to jump to the new S-curve. So these are almost like signals of a time to jump. One, you mentioned there, the scale as endgame approach. The second was positively letting go divestiture versus M&A dilemma, that dilemma that many organizations have because they think they'll buy their way to growth, as you kind of mentioned. And then the the next is a really interesting one the dangerous instinct for efficiency. So this is where you're getting everybody into that mode of let's scale, let's make as much profit as we can, let's milk the cash cow, and those innovators leave the organization as well. So it kind of links to the talent problem as well. Maybe we'll hover over that one for a little bit and then move on to the other signals, which are waiting too long to seek the next BME and then not committing fully to the next BME and then also misjudging how quickly capabilities can be copied. I'll remind you of those other ones, but maybe for the moment, the dangerous instinct for efficiency. Yeah, the dangerous instinct for efficiency, we saw again and again, and I see it constantly. And the key is, as the business matures on an S-curve, you really have to move from the innovation part where you're trying to get the offering correct and then once you've got the right thing and you know customers want it and demand really is picking up, you got to service that demand. And then as you're doing it, comp- competition comes in and your pricing power decreases. So now you got to find a way to make new profits, additional profits. 
And most of the way to do that is by taking the costs out of the business, right? So that's the natural curve in maturity. But as you're taking out those costs, you can become really fixated with the idea of efficiency. And it's often termed, you know, in the old days and the time of this book is, you know, Six Sigma, right? Some people remember that and being a Six Sigma warrior, just getting all kinds of credits. In that. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a Six Sigma expert in lean, you know, production, lean Six Sigma expert. The problem is if you get so, you get what we call it, you know, target fixation in the Air Force, they call it a target fixation. If you're dogfighting, sometimes you get so fixated on the target that as you shoot it down, you follow it right into the ground. <laughs> um, so this used to happen, particularly in the World War One, World War Two days of dogfighting. Wow, were, I love that. Yeah, love that. That's it's, brilliant. It's called target fixation, and you're still watching, and you're looking at this plane blow up, and the next thing you know, you blow up. <laughs> so you can't. Um, you got to be able to let go of cost management enough to be able to say, "Hey, you know." this is all great and this is good and I'm getting a 2% a year or whatever. I'm getting, you know, um, sales costs down and, um, you know, this and that, but that's actually even a, a great example of the, how, you know, the time is like, once you're really, really, really focused on that, it's probably the time you need to be thinking about what's our next, <laughs> next step. What's the next curve. And do I have people that aren't just great, you know, green shade accountants, do I have people that say, you know, people are going to buy this at any price. Um, this is such a great, you know, these are the kind of offering additions and changes we need to make so that we get some of that pricing power back. Don't have to rely so much on cost management. There's one more really good example that I think really highlights the point of this overemphasis on cost cutting and, and efficiency, and that's the Malcolm Baldrige Award that the United States created. And so it's a U.S.-centric example, but at the time, at the, the heyday of um, this uh, Six Sigma kind of mentality, um, we gave an award, and one of the big award winners of the Malcolm Baldrige Award was Motorola. And what they had done is used technology to optimize every component of their process from ideation to team building to you know, uh, funding, annual funding through projects. And you could change you know, who was staffed to projects, and you knew who was staffed to everything and so it was really a far leading edge investment in uh, efficiency and managing the entire process and every sub-process in the business. The challenge was it didn't work in real life because what happened is you had to live by the rules of the system, which is the normal sort of outcome of these things. So I couldn't do, I couldn't reallocate monies that were planned in January or allocated, you know, we plan our money and investment in January, we allocate it in June, it gets spent through December, and then we start up the whole cycle again, right? But there, so what happened is it became to maintain the efficiencies, you had to kind of perform within the system and eventually the weight of that system. So you know, long story short, you can see that the, the history of Motorola and, and what happened. And so 
you know, despite winning this great efficiency award, the greatest, possibly the greatest efficiency award a business could win, um, you know, it won the battle, but, but lost the war. I was thinking of a very funny story there. I was working in an organization when you mentioned Six Sigma and I was, it was an organization where a new CFO had come in and he had a, he was on a mission to cut costs and he saw people like me who were creating new products and driving change as too expensive, let's put it that way, and that we should all focus on efficiency. So I tried to, I tried to play along with the game and I, I asked to do a course on Six Sigma. <laughs> and I was, my whole idea was like, I'll, I'll throw them a bone here and go, look, I'm, I'm, I'm towing the line here. I'm going to be more efficient, which was, was going to be very useful for my job anyway, because a lot of it was project management. You'd come up with the idea and then you'd develop the product, whatever. But the funny thing was that they wouldn't invest in that change. <laughs> they wouldn't invest in the education for me. It was only like two grand. And I was like, oh, well, the writing's on the wall here. <laughs> well, that's the cost. Yeah, it's managing the cost you know, missing the forest for the trees and sort of, you know, it goes to the whole sharpening the saw too, right? It's like, we have no money to sharpen the saw. It's funny you mentioned uh, the, the forest for the trees. I had in my notes here, mention if we have time, Andrew Huberman and, and who Andrew Huberman is for people who don't know, he's this brilliant Stanford professor who has a brilliant podcast. He sends a lot of audience to us, Paul, and his whole thing is on human health and performance. But, it, but he, his main course of study was ophthalmology and the human eye. And, and he, he, he had this fascinating insight that I use in my workshops, and it goes as follows. It's, it's that if the human eye is stressed, so stressed could be focused or it could be interested in somebody you find attractive or it could be you're actually just see somebody as the kind of enemy and you focus. So this idea of the target, the old hunter gatherer focusing on the, on the prey, whatever that you're about to destroy. And he said, when you look at that eye from the other side, the eye, if it's looking into a forest will focus on a target like a tree, but it won't see the wider forest. It will only see the point at which it's looking at, but when it's calm and somewhat relaxed, it will see the whole forest. And his point was throughout the day when people are just going from, you know, looking on their phone to um, focusing in a meeting. And then the minute you get out of the meeting, you're focusing on your phone and you're going from meeting to meeting. You don't get these moments of looking wide and actually seeing the bigger picture. And I wrote about it before and I was like, going, well, that's actually what happens in organizations when they're too focused. They miss what's going on, the changing business landscape, the changing demands of the customer maybe suppliers leaving them or maybe suppliers getting fed up with them. And I just thought it was an interesting insight. And you, you brought it up about the forest for the trees. Yeah, I think it's exactly right. No, it's a great story because, you know, I, the key there, I think, is the word stress because it's a function of, of stress, like you say. So when you're stressed, the eyes start to lose the peripheral vision. But we need our employees to have that peripheral vision. So the question is, you know, how do we do that? And I think one of the great examples that we have even in this book um, that we talk about it is, you know, giving people the room uh, to think, time to think and, and room to grow. So you look at things like 3M, right, which really, it, you know, says we only want to use our people 80 percent. And then for a while there was Google. 
um, that, you know, was talking about a day off, right? That, you know, um, so you spend four days on your normal stuff and one day on kind of doing, you know, the creative stuff. But trying to systematically, organizationally enforce this ability to like, all right, relax, you know, take a step back and see the periphery um, and then get back <laughs> into focus. Um, so I think it's a it's a great example. I love the the examples you bring throughout the book. And I know you might say other oh, old examples, but please do share them because many of our audience won't have heard them as well. So I think even though these some of the examples are organizations that you may be well, well acquainted with, maybe not so for our audience. So please do don't feel you don't don't share them, even though they're older stories, maybe. But the next three, and I think two you can kind of do together is waiting too long to seek the next BME. And this is oftentimes, you know, you act when it's too late. And then when you do, and many of us have been through this as innovators, the organization gives you a feigned half-hearted effort of oh yeah let's give it six months <laughs> you know like you're like that will never work this is not fully committing to the next beamy and then the last one is misjudging how quickly capabilities can be copied by competitors well i think the first one of waiting too long is we've covered pretty well um it ties into the second you're right in the sense that what happens if you wait too long is that the business starts to lose its strength it loses its power and what most, what a lot of managers kind of forget is that while the business looks so good early on, you kind of think, you know, well, when the time comes, we'll invest in that. But when the time comes, you're actually operating at half the margins or less, right? You're you're a very different business at that time, and it's hard to come up with um, the resources to do it, especially the resources and talent, because at that point, you've as we've discussed. You know, you've sort of six sigma out all the innovators. So you just you don't have the assets and the resources um, to do it by waiting too late. And then the third point, you know, this asks this question of um, how quickly capabilities can be copied. Um, I think that, you know, particularly even today, we see intellectual property and how hard it is to protect that and that. Um, you know, people sort of believe that um, once they have something, it's going to be good uh, for a while. But, um, you know, again, um, you think of things like content or music or, um, you know, even a, a generation of a phone, of a cell phone, you're only kind of as good as your, your last version. And so when we get into uh, some of the, the next books, we'll talk a lot about the idea of versioning. Um, because you really have to sort of bundle the innovations that you can bring to bear and then have a release and then kind of go release to release. And it's tough for the customer to know, you know, a, a good example there would be like MRI equipment for a, a hospital, um, CAT scans and that. Well, do I buy the machine now with these capabilities or do I buy the next version? And the key is once I've bought your product, I really am not in a position to buy it again for some number of years until I've amortized it. So the idea of um, competition having that window, which is like, all right, so, you know, you sort of saturated today's market, but, um, you know, 
thanks to the endless drumbeat of Moore's Law and, and versioning, it's like, well, are you going to win on the next version of the product? And like I said, you see that in cell phones is a great example in Google versus Apple, um, you know, versus Samsung phones. Um, you know, how distinctive is it? Yeah, it's a real problem. And, and even, you know, I all often have a guilt, Paul, about this where I have so much tech now of like this graveyard of old iPads and old Macs even. And they just, they're, they're kind of useless. Like, and even nobody wants them. And then you go, well, the materials that made them are quite expensive and there's nowhere really to recycle them. And for all the Apple say about, yeah, sure, send them into us. I don't know if they're really recycling and, and using them again. Like that's the, one of the problems, actually. Bob Mesta, who was on the show, said about MRI machines is, well, what do I do with the old one? Exactly. I mean, it's exactly right. And this is what becomes, you know, with the pace of technology, I always go, going back to Zenith and that, right? You know, televisions, we're so darn old. I'm so darn old. Televisions used to come in a big wooden box. It was part of your furniture. And the idea was, you you know, you would change out your TV only as often as you changed out all of your furniture, which might not be that often, might be you know, once in a lifetime. For the old days, you had your living room furniture and that was it. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, again, an old story, but informative is, well, once television technology started changing fast enough, they had to get rid of the, you know, they didn't sell televisions in wooden boxes anymore in furniture boxes because uh, it was just too expensive. Um, you know, and when you think about even autos now, the ability, most of what's new in an auto is the technology. Every time you buy, I bought a car 10 years later. The only thing that was really different and I appreciated was all the new technology, the uh, so this, you know, planned obsolescence, and it's funny, Aiden, I'll let you know, the first article I ever published actually was about the idea of resale markets and how the need for resale markets would actually, was critical to increasing the speed of innovation. And I think that's probably an idea whose time has come again and and continues to come. But it's really true, you, you know, and the old example there is, um, things like uh, RVs, recreational vehicles, um, you know, those Winnebago's. And, and the Winnebago problem is once you've saturated the market in Winnebago's, the only way you can get more Winnebago's into the market is if you give somebody a chance to sell the one that they have. Um, so resale markets and the ability to recycle, and particularly today, I think, in the, you know, the nature of greening the planet, it's going to be a real problem, and we're seeing that. And we're seeing companies, you know, Best Buy stepping in to help recycle, um, you know, and creating um, easy recycling and free recycling uh, for products, you know, both good for the environment, but absolutely critical in a world where we have the power of technology to create new products and new features and new stuff, but we just can't be filling up everybody's you know, garages and homes and that with, like you say, stacks of old technologies. And even old chargers and every kind, all kinds of old stuff just doesn't work. And my kids don't even want to eat. When I was a kid, I used to love taking that stuff apart, but they don't even want to do that, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll give you another quick story on that. 
which is really important from innovation, because obviously this is all about innovation in the end, was the realization that happened over time that even poor countries don't want old technology. It doesn't help them. So the, there was an idea early on in the PC days, and again, I date myself, but there was this idea that we could send all the old ones to you know, uh, an emerging economy, and they would be darn glad for it. And the reality, even in autos and stuff, as it turned out, no, they want the new, more powerful stuff. Old technology doesn't actually um, help, and it's certainly not as desirable as was sort of thought. So, yeah, you can't ship, you know, a million old PCs to some other country and, and recover much for it. There was an interesting story you told me when we first met, when we were planning this series, and, and you were telling me that... Uh, when you moved in to a new home, the people who were before you had cut out a shape for a TV and they'd kind of planned ahead and went, oh, yeah, we'll cut it wide enough in case these TVs get bigger and bigger. And maybe you tell the story. That's my current home, actually, my current home. I actually I'm, I'm stuck with a 60 inch television. And in fact, now it's very hard because no makers actually make 60. They kind of make 55 and 65. And, but the cutout was for a 60 inch diagonal. And at the time, I'm sure, because it was probably 20 years ago when the furniture, when my family room was made, nobody imagined that a TV could be that big that it would ever you know now it's uh now you know i'd love an 85 inch but uh but my wife won't let me cut the the cabinets so i'm stuck i i've got to have a 60 <laughs> first world problems brother first world problems. i know that's why i'm a little embarrassed to even say it but it's uh but again it is sort of it's the funnier it's the mix of technology with capabilities i mean even you know uh, new cars and cars with built-in chargers of phones and that um it's just amazing how the mix of old technology and new technology you know how you try and keep that flow together it's it's an interesting analogy for what you were saying about divestiture because part of me the old me used to hang on to that stuff and now i just get rid of it because i'm like kind of going it's just going to be replaced by better stuff and it's kind of like this whole idea well, you need that in the business as well. You need to realize that the pace of change in technology, because it's exponential, and Moore's law means that that stuff's just no good anymore. And you know, you have this little bit of oh, but I paid a lot of money for it, and you have a bit of oh, maybe there's some use for it, but you just got to let it go. A, a mate of mine used to say to me, "There's a saying that he lives by. It's like if you drop your set of keys into a, a river of molten lava." Let it go, brother. Let it go. <laughs> and it's the same for that kind of stuff. Well, there's also, I think, you know, there's, it's really important for business because I think you raise a great point that, you know, this idea of assets becoming stranded assets, we, you know, we call stranded assets and obsolescence. It's true of the factories and any of your assets, you know, so we'll talk more in the other books about it, but, you know, becoming asset light has become so critical because of the pace of technology change that, you know, whether it's a cell phone manufacturing plant or a chip manufacturing plant or an auto manufacturing plant, 
you know, when those technologies obsolesce, the the value, the residual value in those things, it doesn't drop linearly. It drops, you know, in this awful kind of reverse Poisson curve. I don't know what you would kind of call it, right? <laughs> but it, it, it drops very fast and exponentially. Um, and that's increasingly the case. So I think it's increasingly important um, for strategists and companies to be thinking about and executives and that is thinking about, you know, yeah, I've got these assets and what they're worth, but what happens if my production plants, you know, are, are no longer worth what I think they are? What if they're actually worth nothing? Yeah, and maybe we'll maybe you you shared a brilliant story with me about Nokia in in the, that kind of area about understanding about they they weren't asset light and this led to part of their downfall. We might as well cover that here because we've introduced the idea. And it's a simple idea, but it's really, really important because, yeah, we do cover the nature of, of it in the next book, Big Bang Disruption, because it's this whole idea that as, as things speed up and technology speeds up business, the idea of investing in assets, exploiting assets, getting out of assets, well, all of that has to happen much faster. Um, and a, a classic example, um, but even at the slow pace, even at a slower pace, um, because these things often take, you know, years or decades. But Nokia had a problem in that, you know, the real problem Nokia, it's, we, our discussion before was, it's kind of foolish to say that the executives of Nokia didn't see smartphones coming. Um, you know, nobody could be that immersed in phone technology and not see these things happening, right? I mean, these were not not smart people. But what happened with Nokia is what happens across lots and lots of businesses is that to achieve the success you want today, and the you know, particularly in this case, quality, it's like, okay, I have to create lots of phones, but I don't have lots of phone cap capacity in Finland. So where can I build all these phones? Well, China um, would be great for lots of reasons and cost and that, but I need the quality. And what's the best way to control the quality and, and accelerate production in China. And that's, well, that's to own the factories. So I take a loan and I, I own these factories in China. But now the technology has shifted, but I own, I have a mortgage on all of these assets to create a certain type of phone in China. So now I'm a little bit stuck. <laughs> do I accelerate into a new technology and try and figure out what to do with the old factories and sell them fast enough before someone else realizes that it's a factory designed for old technology. And how do I pay off the mortgage? Because I didn't actually buy this out of, you know, profits at the time I, I borrowed to create those assets, but we see this pattern over and over again. And so what happens is the pace of innovation at many companies is limited to the speed at which they can get out of, undepreciated assets and if you have moore's law all that says is you know in the pace of business and technologies the faster that gets the faster your you know your capability of getting in and out of assets becomes an essential capability for for both strategy and operations you probably have some great examples, Paul. One of the great ones I heard was from Rita McGrath, and she told me that 
Verizon did this. So the leader of Verizon at the time got out of the Golden Pages books, the Yellow Pages business, and everybody thought he was mad. And he sold off knowing that the world was moving towards technology and took the money he'd made from that and, re- and invested it in burgeoning, started the S-curve businesses, like, for example, uh, broadband and, and technology to be able to bring broadband across America. And when you're that type of leader, you often get criticized for that. And you give some great examples in the book of Cisco, for example, doing this and getting ahead of the curve. Maybe you'll give us some of your examples. Well, I'll give you a, it's funny. The first example comes as a negative one, because I think that, um, you know, while the Verizon story there or whatever is great because yeah, you see that the end of a phone book, paper phone book. So you get out of that and then, you know, even printed anything. It's like, well, do I want to own the assets? And R. Donnelly was the printer that used to print the U S phone books. Um, and you know, then it's like, well, what else am I going to print instead? And you get, you know, so do I want to be in that business and getting out of that business, but you have to be, careful of premature abandonment. And so the example that came to mind too is General Electric, you know, GE, because of the idea that, um, you know, if you get out of businesses too soon so that you have the money to invest in the next businesses, you've got to make sure that the next businesses you're getting into are sufficiently mature and sufficiently likely to succeed that you keep the flow going. What can happen is if you would talk about this in the third book a lot is if you sell the old businesses too soon and buy, you know, invest in new technologies, new businesses prematurely, and they don't mature at the the rate you need, you can run out of business funding and then you're really up a creek because there's nothing left to sell. It's sort of the eating your seed corn. There's nothing left to sell. Um, but I still need to keep investing more if I'm going to jump the curve. Um, and that's where we see a lot of, of jumping failing is that, um, you know, it's, it's making the changes needed to move to a new curve is expensive. And that's why it's often best to begin that process when the company is actually doing its best, like a Verizon, even that Verizon example, right? It's like, well, I, they, were, they weren't financially stretched. They didn't need to sell that. They just had the vision to sort of sell it and, and move and get in early to the next things. Um, but that pacing and timing is critical. So, so we're going we're gonna to keep moving here because I talked to Paul all day and I have, by the way, and <laughs> we've, we should have recorded those conversations, Paul, as well. But let's move on to edge centric strategy so there's some key diagrams in the book one was the hidden s curves the next then that i think is really important to see is edge centric strategy and these are the hidden s curves of market relevance so maybe you'll speak to this diagram i'm going to show it on the screen for those people who are watching us here on youtube you can see the diagram as paul speaks to it but paul let's have a little bit of empathy maybe for people who are just listeners what happens is that while strategy starts to mature, um, a lot of supposed business strategy stays with average performers in strategic planning along the financial S curve. So we talked about that, you know, there's revenues growing or where are revenues at, where are profits at? And a lot of the, the discussion of strategy really starts to become 
you know, what's our strategy for prolonging the current curve, not what's our strategy for getting to the next curve. And so the question is, how did the high performers get us to the next curve? And I think in the book, we talked about it as edge-centric strategy. Um, and what I liked about it when we created it was there was really two edges that we were talking about. There's the edge of the organization, and there's the edge of chaos in strategy. So the first part, the edge of, of the organization, was the recognition that, um, particularly since new technologies um, were creating so many new capabilities, that we had the ability to listen to and get onto the edge of customers and, and consumers all over the world to um, observe them over time with their permission but we could see what they were doing online. We could see where their interests were lying. We could use cameras and stores to see how they walked through the aisles. Um, an extraordinary time. And as a, a Kellogg School of Management uh, graduate myself and marketer from the early days, an incredible heyday of, of technology applied to market research, um, creating these abilities to really get to the edge. And so a couple of the examples that we talked about, Aiden, you know, Docker's actually, um, as an American phenomenon for Levi's, um, this idea of wearing khaki pants instead of jeans, well, that actually originated in Japan um, and was tested in South America before it was brought to the United States. So it was not really an American phenomenon. Um, and there's just lots of examples like that. Cosmetics for um, P&G. Uh, SK uh, is starting in Japan. Uh, and in fact, and we'll talk about talent a little bit, you know, AJ Laffley is the CEO uh, having to go out to Japan to actually grow uh, and make that business. So we talk about strategy at the edge um, being about how do you bring in, and there's lots of different examples, how do we bring in ideas um, from the edge of the organization, from the customer themselves? Um, and I'll give you one more example there that's um, really important because I had talked about in the previous uh, session, we talked about diabetes and Novo Nordisk. And what Novo Nordisk did to get to the edge was they created a, 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 an initiative called DAWN, and that stood for Diabetes Attitudes um wants and needs. And I really like that. Attitudes, wants, and needs. And really that was just a, a, a market marketing listening function and initiative. Um, but that was important to, to building things like recognizing that depression was uh, co-related, uh, co uh, concomitant with oftentimes with diabetes. And so in order to really treat diabetes, it wasn't just about the insulin and the things they made. There was opportunities in, and the need to understand things like depression uh, and that. So, you know, creating these kind of edge of things. But then there was the edge of control. And that was really interesting because we found, you know, the big question if you study strategy oftentimes is what is the right way to do strategy in an organization? And it was one that fascinated me forever. And what we found when we looked at the high performers, you know, and I talked with my co-author, um, you know, Tim Breen and that, and was like, you know, well, what do we see? And I say, you know, we're not seeing any real pattern here. And then it struck us 
The pattern was the absence of the pattern. High, the high performers, almost to, to the company, didn't do strategy in one particular way. And we talked about Motorola kind of doing, you know, the Six Sigma approach in the Malcolm Baldridge system. They, they did all kinds of strategic approaches. They did continual, um, you know, approaches to strategy creation, emergent strategy, but they also did fixed in time plans. They did um, episodic, what we called episodic uh, strategy initiatives, things like horizon exercises. Toyota does uh, a large strategy initiative every 10 years. And it's really interesting that if you look at how you can see how those 10 year strategy visioning sessions and initiatives have led to their different products. So one of them led to Prius when they realized that you couldn't have as many cars in an emerging economy world um, that were all going to be gasoline, but they didn't have the technology at the time for fully electric cars. So the question was, um, you know, what, what do we have to do in that middle space and then committing to it? We can talk a lot more about that, but it's interesting that you can see both emergent approaches and um, punctuated approaches um, at companies like Toyota and that. And we saw that over and over again. Um, you know, there were no permanent processes, just a permanent commitment to a lot of strategic thinking and a lot of uh, strategic approaches. Um, so sometimes it was, you know, listening to top executives. Sometimes it was listening to customers. Sometimes it was listening to suppliers. Um, and so that was the nature of edge-centric um, strategy. That leads us nicely to, okay, well, that's the strategy, but who are the people then behind those processes and, and the have the appetite to go and change strategy and update capabilities, et cetera? The questions you ask here are, who are the people with the wherewithal to lead such strategic transitions? How are they selected? And how do they work together to devise and implement new strategies? And you offer... At the start of this chapter, uh, a story I hadn't heard before, which was really interesting, which was the story of Wang Laboratories, a uh, story of demise. But there's a, an, a hidden S-curve in here that goes untold, the plateau of capabilities S-curve. I'm going to show as well on the screen, for those people watching us, the diagram that goes along with this, which shows the capabilities S-curve. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. This one, again, had a, a really counterintuitive insight for us. Because we started to try and see, it started with the capabilities, because we said the second hidden S-curve is the capabilities mature um, before the business does. And then we said, well, how do you, how do the high performers manage to change their capabilities and build new capabilities before they need to or before they can't? And what we found was an interesting thing that's always stuck with me which is tied to the idea that all of strategy is actually resource allocation. So if you don't change your resource allocation, you're not really affecting any strategy. And a real strategist and a chief strategy officer, when we study chief strategy officers, it's all about resource allocation. And so we hit on it when we looked in that the reason high performers were able to change their capabilities ahead of the curve was because they were able to manage and change their top teams ahead of the curve and that they had very different ways of thinking about and managing their top leadership. 
So going back to the Wang example, uh, the Wang example is a company that was hugely successful in uh, word processing, and it was um, calculators before that. So they jumped some S-curves um, based right here in Boston. Um, but they tried to move into PCs when that was necessary. It didn't really work out, um, moved back. They kind of just lost their way. And it was strange because at one point they owned, really owned almost – uh, 60 plus percent, I think it was, of um, processing software, of word processing software in the old days. They were the next version of typewriters. Um, but then it sort of diffused away, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that there was, the founder was really positioning his son in as the next CEO. And he moved in at age 46, not that there's any right age, but most of the business and a lot of the street thought he was a bit too young to be taking it on. Uh, it turned out that his potential lack of experience made him very uh, indecisive. Um, and so things fell apart. But again, it was because there wasn't really a plan for how, uh, or a good plan for how the talent was going to evolve. And what we saw in the top performers is that they take CEO succession and top management succession extraordinarily seriously. Um, and in fact, what they do is a, a few things. They do early renewal, which is what we saw again and again, which was interesting, is that the top performers never really had to fire their CEOs, not because they were top performers, but because there was already a plan to move the CEO out before um, and a new one in before the company got in trouble. Um, and that ties to the second feature, which was that they thought of CEOs as having a foot in today and a foot in tomorrow, but that the new CEO was also the right CEO for the right moment. And that was really interesting because they possessed this idea that we don't really know who the right CEO in five years is going to be. It, you know, if things change on the global stage, it might need to be somebody who really understands global um, penetration of, of markets. If it turns out to be a technology problem is stymieing us, we might need a technology, uh, a strong technology lead as the CEO. So this idea of, and, and leadership team, this idea of being able to evolve your leadership team to needs at the moment not something like the needs of, uh, you know, a father-son succession. Um, all of that really changing um, the way we thought about top management succession and, um, and really a, a counterintuitive insight is that if you want to change your capabilities, first you got to change who owns those capabilities and uh, you may have to change who owns those capabilities and how they're thinking about those capabilities. Such a tough decision, that one where the captain won't go down with the ship as we were talking about before, because they fall in love with the ship or, or they will go down with the ship rather than let someone else run the ship for them. Well, that's exactly it because the, you know, it's, it's very hard for a top leadership team not to become deeply personally associated with what they've built. Um, but what they've built has to change and you need that systemic capability of not letting the personalities 
become tied so tied to the business that you you can't change the one without the other. It's one of the stories I heard Paul about Kodak it was one of the problems was because Kodak was such the the big giant in in New Jersey and employed so many people and they all knew each other and people moved there especially that it was so so hard to let people go and update capabilities and update people and they clung to the past in that respect as well yeah well i mean but more specifically i think what's interesting is the idea that you know if you're the executive that built a factory or got into a certain technology or did something for a company, it's very hard for that executive to also be the one that says, oh, now it's time to sell it. So <laughs> we need to sell those assets, or, right? Because there's a legacy aspect to all of, um, to to management. There's, they can't help but be. And so where it gets really complicated in the personal and leadership sides of this, right, is that every leader wants to leave a legacy but there are very few things that are permanent in business. So that paradox, and my co-author Tim Breen was fantastic about always seeing and bringing up to us, uh, to me, especially in you know, writing this book, is that it's balancing these paradoxes. And it's like, well, Paul, how do we do that? You know, How do you build a legacy that isn't based on having leftover stuff hanging around? <laughs> um, and it was nearly impossible except for the high performer. Exactly. And that teases up lovely because the last curve I'm going to share is establishing hotbed conditions. And here you talk about, and you know, my mental model is often sport that the teams that do best are the teams that have a really good bench, have a really good squad and are, are constantly vetting players and giving them game time over a long period of time. So they're giving them actually stretch assignments and preparing them for when they may become the leaders as well. And they're keeping them interested as well. This is one of the things that happens with a lot of sports teams is you have a really good bench, but they don't get enough game time. So they leave and go to a different club. And the same thing happens if you don't create the right conditions in an organization. Some of the high performers you mentioned here, Paul, were Schlumberger, P&G again, and UPS. And you say these... We're all consistently maintaining deep benches of excess talent because you say here, it's not just about having sufficient amount of talent. You have to have a surplus. And not only that, they maintain that talent through good times and bad because oftentimes you see people being jettisoned during tough times, but the good companies keep them and actually hire in the bad times. Yeah, I think you get it completely because I think anybody who really has been on a team, whether it's a work team or, you know, professional sports team, understands the value of team um, better than most. And the idea that it's not really just about specific skills or capabilities. It's really about the chemistry, the interaction of the team, the culture of the team. And those all sort of sound like, you know, kind of soft words in a way. And that's why I think, you know, lots and lots, hundreds of books, thousands of books have been written about it. Um, but it really is this idea of how do we actually create um, the right team. And what we saw in the high performers that was really interesting, and I'll, I'll contextualize it for today and why it's even tougher today. Uh, what we saw in the high performers was all this, the the proper insights about you have to hire um, 
for culture and for fit rather than skills necessarily. Um, and that you have to plan on growing the talent. Um, and we use the term a hothouse of talent. It was not surprising to us really to see, but it was surprising how consistent it was that, you know, all of the high performers were pretty much famous, whether it was um, Danaher or P&G or these other companies in their industry. When you looked at who was the CEO of any of the companies in the industry, almost all of them had cut their teeth at the high performers. And that's because they because they're they're net producers of this talent because they don't they have lots and lots of systems and processes to grow talent, and they have ways of moving them out into the industry so that everybody's happy. Everybody, you know, you got a great experience working for the company. You're very loyal, but if there wasn't room to grow in the company, you grow out of the company. You know, hard feelings. But this idea of of growing it. I think one of the worst things that's happened to talent, and it's counterintuitive or uh, being provocative, but the idea of being able to look for talent on online talent sites um, and the thought that you're going to get the talent you need by simply looking for skills that have been, you know, optimized in databases and in that you punch a button and you see somebody who has 10 years of marketing of white spirits and liquor. And yeah, it just doesn't really work. Um, and so the question of strategic fit and cultural fit versus pure skills is so much more important. And then the idea of, um, investment companies making investments in the talent like you say you know stretch goals it's like well sometimes i'm going to give you a stretch goal and i may even let that fail inside the company simply so that you as a leader can grow i mean i'll give you an example from ge and imult whatever you think of jeff imult um regardless one of the things that helped jim jeff imult become ceo was that he was given a very difficult task of there was a problem in the production and there was uh, a refrigerators. The refrigerator business um, was having serious problems. And the question was, you know, do we just wait for that business to fix it? Or do we take somebody from somewhere else and say, all right, here's your chance to go in and actually fix the problem. And Jeff went in, banged it out. They thought it was going to be like a two year, three year problem. Six months later, he has the whole thing under control. Um, and they recognize this is a person who can lead this whole thing. Um, and, and so this, you know, this willingness to test and invest in all these other things in your people, so critical. And, you know, people say, well, it's easy to do when you have the money. But the interesting thing, too, is that when GE took its downturn um, right uh, in, in the first parts um, because of the economy, they didn't, one of the things they didn't cut was their investment in training. Um, and that was held sacrosanct um, because they recognized that their ability to have the leaders they were going to need for the tough time, it was all built off this ability to build um, loyal, capable uh, teams. Beautiful, beautiful way to finish it, Paul, as well. And I, I have to say, I, I, I see that so much. And it's just like being a parent, isn't it? Where you're, you're trying to give your kids that 
balance of bit of struggle in order to build the capability for their own lives. So they're not coming back to you to do their washing <laughs> when they're older with a, with a bag of laundry. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's the same thing. You got to give them a bit of a bit of struggle in order to build the talent. Paul, for people who want to reach out to you, where's the best place to find you? The best place to find me is probably through my email. It's paulnunis23 at gmail.com. And um, love to hear from anybody who who'd like to reach out. Brilliant, Paul. It's it's a uh, your work is lovely. I I really enjoyed the writing. I enjoyed the case studies. I enjoyed the deep research you've done, and indeed the humility with which you present yourself as well. It's it's a joy, and I want to I want to remind our audience as well. Some of you, the discerning viewer, will notice that everything's changed in the studio here. That's because I'm in a new studio, full with teething problems and everything. And you'll notice the books have all changed because some people, Paul, always comment that the books were in colored order now i'm actually putting them by theme and you you know the reason i say that is paul's books aren't up there yet because they're in i'm pointing behind the camera here loads of boxes that i have to unpack over there and i'm saying that because i have a copy of this brilliant book jumping the s curve how to beat the growth cycle get on top and stay there up for grabs and i want to give that away to one of our loyal listeners just sign up to the innovation show Substack if you're not already there and finally, I just want to thank our brilliant guest because he's going to be back. We're going to cover his other two books, Big Bang Disruption and Pivot for the Future. He is Paul Nunes, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Paul, thank you very much. Thanks, Aidan.